my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, in the middle of this study, I, I, I have to admit that there was a lot of, I mean, some, some of the messages that we study for, for Deeper Waters, you, you try to put the same amount of time of study in, but this was definitely a lot more uh, labor intensive because there's so much that surrounds this verse, so much that we, we hear about and that we discuss amongst the, theology and theologians and people who study the word. And so in this verse, though, I found that in Mark, it's a fulfillment of Psalms 22. So I'm going to read verse 1, and this is really just David in a time of trouble. It says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? See, Psalm 22 is a prophetic word of what was going to come of Jesus on the cross. And all throughout this psalm are references to the cross. We can see a foreshadowing of what was going to come of the Messiah. And David caught some of the very last words of the Christ on the cross in this psalm. It, was, it is also could have been that Jesus was thinking about this psalm while he was on the cross. While he was being crucified. So in this utterance of this verse, Jesus is going through one of the most painful ways to die. A moment of what looks like full abandonment and desperation and the excruciating death of asphyxiation. And Jesus is choking on his own blood while his lungs are being filled with fluid. And this verse, the words of Jesus in this moment, is not a mystic or supernatural way of identifying the Trinity, triune, co-equal, co-eternal God. This plea and cry isn't a defining moment where God the Father left God the Son or where the Spirit abandoned God the Son. And we know this to be true because of what Scripture says about who Jesus is. Or better way to put it would be to say who God is. You see, God is one. There is no separation of God on the cross. We have biblical evidence of the true oneness of who God is, not the Trinity of God. I cannot find a scriptural reference to the actual Trinity or triune God. And Jesus tells Philip in John 14.9, If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And Colossians 2.9 says, describes Jesus' place in the actual Godhead. And it says, For in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So then you have the Shema, which is just the Jewish pronouncement of who God is found in the Old Testament. And this is found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. So Jesus is God incarnate, which is to say that Jesus is God embodied in the flesh. God in human form. So 2 Corinthians states that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Jesus was God the Father, made manifest in the flesh to reconcile the world to himself. So this cry on the cross does not mean that the Spirit of God had departed the body, but that there was no help from the Spirit in his sacrificial death of substitution for our sinful humanity. This was not one person of the Godhead being departed by another. It was the man filling the wrath and judgment of God upon the sins of humanity. So we do not see two sons, son of man and son of God, but there were two natures. 
deity and humanity joined in one person. The divine spirit could not be separated from the human nature and then life continue. It couldn't happen. So in the way, the truth, and the life, which is a Bible study by Gary R. Darnbach, who is our pastor's late father, he included a vivid description from a medical physician's point of view of the death on the cross and what someone would have had to endure on this cross. You see, the cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionary feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly. Allowing some flex and movement, the cross is then lifted into place. The foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down. A nail is driven through the arch of each Leaving the knees flexed once more, the victim has now been crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrist, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms. To explode into the brain, the nails and the wrist are putting pressure on the media nerves as he pushed himself upward to avoid this stretching torment. He places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through his nerves between the bones of his feet. And as the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even a small breath. And finally, carbon dioxide builds in the lungs and in the bloodstream. The cramps partially subside, but spasmatically he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting of joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back. As he moves up and down against that rough timber, Then another agony begins in a deep, crushing pain, deep in the chest, as the pericardonium, I can't say that word, apologize, slowly fills with serum. And he begins to compress the heart, and it is now almost over the loss of tissue. Fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can... Feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. And finally, he can allow his body to die. This is a vivid account of someone dying to the cross. And it sheds light on the enduring pain of our Savior until the bitter end of his life. But what was happening in this moment is that Jesus became death when he yielded his spirit. So in other words, what Jesus meant when he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was that he had taken the place of sinful humans on the cross and was suffering the full punishment for that sin. He was feeling the fullness of the weight of everything that you and I have ever done or will ever do. He was paying the price in that moment all at once. 
There was no release of the pain that he was feeling. You know, it amazes me that our God, that who could have just in an instant snapped his fingers and been off that cross, he could have just made the choice to walk away. He said, you know what, that's enough pain. I'm just going to stop. He could have done that. He was God. But he never chose to cheat. He never chose to use the power he contained within him. And he bared the pain and suffering of that Christ, of the cross. So I ask you, what, why does this matter? What significance does this have in our lives this morning? It is because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin in our lives is death. Romans 6.23 tells us that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So every single person under the sound of my voice deserved to die and to pay that price. The only person who did not deserve to pay that price was on the cross that day. It was Jesus who took our place on the cross and suffered that death. Romans 5 Verse 6 through 9 says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were yet sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Jesus... He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. This Jesus was more than just a courageous martyr, though, like Stephen. And he was even more than an Old Testament type of sacrifice. Because he died in our place and experienced for a time the death that we all deserve. And scripture says that on the cross he tasted death for every single person. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. This death was more than just a physical death, though. It was a spiritual death as well, which was the separation from God. Second Thessalonians tells us, dealing out full and complete vengeance to those who do not seek to know God and to those who ignore or refuse to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus by choosing not to respond to him. These people will pay the penalty, endure the punishment of everlasting destruction, banished from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You see, this verse is telling us that this is what happens when we choose to reject the gospel. This is what happens when a sinner decides that he doesn't need Jesus, doesn't need the gospel message, and rejects it. And Jesus was feeling that in the moment on the cross. So imagine, if you will, for a moment, the fact that everybody who's ever rejected Jesus in that very instant on the cross, he was feeling this, and that's why he cried out these words. You see, Jesus was suffering the sinner's death. He was being separated from God. But it is true that there are worse things than death. It is possible to suffer a spiritual death. Revelations 20 verse 14 tells us in death and hell we're cast into the lake of fire and this is the second death. This is what awaits those who reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that made for you and me. There is no one on this earth who has ever felt though that spiritual death to the fullest degree. 
And this is because all of us live, we move, and we exist in Jesus and in the presence of God. And Acts 17, 28 tells us this. It says, for in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is why even atheists enjoy many good things in this life. Things like joy, love, and even life itself. And that is because every good thing comes from God. James 1.17 tells us, Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. So everything that has ever been created by our God is sustained by Him. You see, you breathe His air. You eat His food. You enjoy his sunlight, and your decision to either love him or reject him is a gift of free will given to you by him. So everything that is good comes from him. But Jesus went to a cross, and he tasted of that ultimate death in that moment on that cross. The feeling of being truly separated from God that every rejecter and sinner will feel in that lake of fire. You see, Jesus felt the anguish, the hopelessness, and despair as though he was a person who was eternally forsaken by God. So the man Jesus cried out on the cross as Jesus took the sin of the whole world, feeling the eternal punishment and separation for that sin. And 1 Peter 2.24 tells us, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. We must not make the assumption that the Spirit of God departed from the body of Jesus, though, in that moment when he uttered these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, the divine Spirit left the human body only at death. Hebrews 9:14 says, "How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God?" What this verse is saying is that Christ offered himself to God through the eternal spirit. And we should remember that Jesus had told his disciples in a respect to his own death. He told them in John 16 verse 32 Two, he says, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. This shows that the eternal Spirit of God, the Father, did not leave the human body of Christ until Christ's own death. Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8 says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus chose never to cheat. He didn't take the advantage that he could have took in the power of his true identity. I mean, Jesus could have at any moment just chosen to say, I was done. I'm, I'm going to crawl off this cross and, and I'm going to have an empire. I'm going to have a kingdom here on this earth. He could have done that. And it's amazing that he said, no, because I love you. 
No, because the sacrifice is worth it. You have the bigger picture in mind. I'm closing. The praise team can come. In Psalms 22, it is as though Jesus had the complete psalm in mind from the viewpoint of the cross. In the beginning of the psalm, it is speaking about the hardships that he was going to endure. It says, the garments that would be taken, the public humiliation, even the piercing of the hands and the feet. And this prayer for help ends in verse 21 when he says, Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. But in verse 22, something shifts. We begin to see that there is a celebration on the other side of the cross. Because Psalms 22, verse 22 says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied, and all who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy, and the whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations, and let the rich of the earth feast and worship, bow before him all who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born, and they will hear about everything he has done. I have to say, this is why we are so excited when the music comes on and when the praise and worship service begins because Jesus died on that cross. He died so that I might be free, so that my stripes might be healed, my burdens might be lifted. He is the great everlasting God. He did more in that moment than anybody could ever do for us. He is worthy of all our praise. So I say, when worship music comes on, think about the cross. Think about the sacrifice. Lift your hands and just worship Him. And give Him honor and glory. I praise the Lord and I worship Him with all that is within me. He made a covenant relationship. If you've never been baptized, the water is warm. There is a moment that you can step into that water. You can be have that name above every name called over you. And there is a, a saving grace that he extends to you in that moment. So if you will, just lift your hands in worship and let's praise the Lord.